0: Welcome to the podcast, Shandine. Um, now, you are both a hydrologist and a science educator, right? What are those things?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, if you merge the two, maybe it's very poorly defined, but I I, I don't know. I guess I'm, uh, in in the manner of speaking about hydrology, I, you know, I'm interested in, um, in the phenomenon of the earth and, you know, in the region I grew up in, you know, there's A lot of rivers lakes and streams and snow snow and snow melt and those are always very curious things to me so um i think hydrology less as a science discipline but more as a human endeavor so i'm just someone curious about water its pathways and its different states as it moves through the environment and and i think the natural um well natural for me is is to really to investigate those but then also to be a facilitator of, of instruction about that phenomenon, and, and in particular, um, to uh, adult learners. I think it's very interesting to me how how that process works.
0: And you mentioned uh, where you grew up from. You actually just arrived here uh, in BC, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. So I, I moved from a small town called Arleigh, and it's in uh, the state of Montana in the United States. Population of around seven eight hundred or so folks, and it's um it's a it's become the traditional homeland of, of my uh, my tribal people, which is the I would consider the Bitterroot Band of Salish, and uh, my ancestors. They've always utilized that particular valley that we're in, but um, largely in in uh, in historic times, we come from a, a valley further south. Uh, called the Bitterroot Valley, and then prior to that um, into uh, the eastern uh, front of Montana. So we, we had traditionally occupied a large uh, piece of Montana, but now we're more localized to the small Jocko Valley in Montana.
0: So yeah, I guess groundwater would have played a very important role uh, traditionally.
1: Yeah, you know, groundwater is, um, you know, it supports the, the the flow in the rivers through, through the winter. And, um, you know, it's... Um, I guess uh, traditionally speaking, you know the springs were the the sources of the the best drinking water, even for my ancestors. So campsites that you'd find on the landscape that were of a historic nature generally were centered around where these seeps or springs were located. So yeah, groundwater is, is is very important. Um, was probably the the basis of most of my early research in hydrology or in geoscience was uh, the, the hydrogeological um, discipline.
0: And uh, what what is your background in hydrogeology? Where did you go to school?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I got a master's degree in geology, but my focus was hydrogeology. And I worked with um, uh, a gentleman by the name of William Wussner. He was a, a noted hydrogeologist who um, happened to be a professor at the uh, University of Montana. And um, we took on a project to investigate the um, floodplain aquifer response to a river restoration project. So um, we measured the response to um, the um, river restoration folks raising the, bay, the the bed level of the river up on average about five feet so the idea was to reconnect some of the riparian habitat in this expansive uh, um, floodplain aquifer. Um, and so we measured that response over the course of about three years. Um, of course, with these short studies, there's, there's, needs, there's a need for more long-term data. So we, my findings were very inconclusive, but it's definitely a project that is ongoing, hopefully for me in the future. That sounds like a lot
0: of fun, a really rewarding project, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and it happens to be, you know, just a, a few miles from my home in, in Montana. So it's very close. So I, I was fortunate to, to do a study um, right in the community I come from.
0: By the way, is the hydrogeology similar uh, in Montana and BC, or is it drastically different?
1: Man, I don't know yet. I do not
0: know yet. <laughs> You've only been here for a month or two. Yeah, I've only
1: been here for, for a short period of time. But, you know, the, the far more rain here in, in Vancouver, the, the metro area. So I can imagine, you know, groundwater, um, at least as a, as a source of drinking water or water usable by the communities is not as big as an issue uh, where I come from. So the rainfall is far less and um, with increasing development in, in this valley um, that is largely uh, dependent on groundwater and groundwater wells for the delivery of, of drinking water. I'm sure it's going to become an issue of uh, aquifer depletion in the future. Um, I went to the um, the um, field station in Oliver over the, over the past weekend, and um, that has a very similar um, Climate it seems, and so I was very keen to know um, what the hydrogeology of that area is, so that's something that we're developing out as a possibly a future um, multi multidisciplinary field site to examine many things related to the landscape from from the ground up, so the geology all the way
0: to the end and from the ground down uh, oh,
1: yeah, or <laughs> ground down, yeah, yeah, we don't want to give these geologists any any precedence over the atmospheric scientists
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Good point.
0: <laughs> what got you into hydrogeology? Like, did you always want to be one, even as a kid, or?
1: <clears throat> Let's see. No, I,
0: you know, I don't. I,
1: no, not really. So my, my educational path was was um, filled with many turns, I guess you could say. Um, I initially was I so I initially received the bachelor's degree in human services. Um, so. Th- this all kind of came out out of a need for some sort of specialization in my community for the, the things that were happening um, that's that seemed to need some attention um, but in my undergraduate you know i i i grew up in the out of doors in a very rural location so I, I was always interested in natural phenomenon and so during that course of getting that undergraduate degree, I decided to double major in environmental science, and I, I think it was during that um, that journey to get that undergraduate degree. I, I at some point I became very interested in you know what was happening in the subsurface, and I believe it was the instructors that I had during that time whose focus was on uh, groundwater and groundwater phenomenon at that time, and um, uh, the. The, the hydrologist that I was working with at that time, his advisor was the um, advisor who um, supervised my master's uh, degree. So he connected me with him. We chatted about some projects some potential research ideas. And at that time there was this large sum of money that um, filtered into the tribes uh, that um, live in my area for a restoration project and the, the, the fit was very natural to um, uh, flesh out this project to examine the, the response of the floodplain aquifer to this
0: river, river restoration project. And what had happened that the river needed restoration?
1: So the river had um, historically been uh, channelized to protect um, some state infrastructure. In this case, there was a, a fish hatchery in the area. That had I've um, been subjected to a couple large flood events that compromised some of the, the facilities there. So the Army Corps of Engineers came in and put in a couple flood protection levees that um, created this um, um, straightening of the channel, which increased the velocity moving through it. So then there was this um, this large um, there was this large change in slope so this erosional process was occurring where we had this big
0: change in head um i wish i could remember the word it sounds like it just started flushing the river out
1: yeah yeah so there, there was this erosion because of the change in the slope so this um so it started having this effect which essentially was lowering or scouring out these large swaths of the, of the river channel and in this particular area, there was this really lush riparian habitat with these with these ponds, uh, external ponds in the floodplain, but those had had dried out over the past I don't know ten years or so. And so um, the tribes at that time decided to put some money into re- trying to reclaim that site. So um, they got some outside consultation, and they decided that well, let's rechannel this whole river to its natural. Um, or its historical um, uh, plan form, and so they did a lot of work to raise the bed, rechannel it, put in meanders to lengthen it out to, to eliminate this large um, uh, head gradient. And um, uh, I forgot the question already. Now, what, what did you say? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, just why it needed um, restoration? Yeah, it was just to restore
1: this this riparian corridor, and really the the, the the history behind this was this mining activity that occurred way, way up in the in the watershed in a, in a town called Butte. So there was this mining company that extracted a lot of minerals. But what it happened? What happened was it exposed a lot of the ore, and, and a lot of that um, mine tailing was getting into the water, and it damaged a lot of, of the Aboriginal uh, fishing areas for our people. So in in um, In in response, the state of Montana and the tribes sued this company for um, money to restore this habitat. And there was a successful case, and so there was a large sum of money. And so instead of restoring the area off of our reserve, they decided to take the money and restore it, restore a section on the reserve, which was not impacted per se by the mining, but was impacted by some other elements activities. So that's kind of the history of that project.
0: We had a similar um, event here in BC. Uh, I know with Howe Sound, uh, it was completely changed by mining. Um, and then over time, they were able to remediate it. And it's uh, coming back uh, very pleasantly. In your work, uh, you must have made some great discoveries or uh, even your findings in that project. Uh, do you have any favorite discoveries you'd care to share?
1: Yeah, I think what it what it showed um, some of the results showed that the 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 interaction of of surface and groundwater is very complex in these alluvial aquifers. In in some sections, there was some some very very strong um, exchanges from groundwater to surface water, and then in you know in a few segments down, there was the opposite. There was some very strong. Uh, surface water contributions to the groundwater. So very, very complex system, and just like any great project, you come out with more questions than answers, but it did help to illustrate this complexity in this very small section of the river. So that was, you know, my, my um, the highlight of, of the whole project was really em- employing multiple techniques to try to describe that interaction. So um, it's not something that we often get to do in an undergraduate education is really employ techniques and see um, meaningful data come out of it. So when I got into a, into a master's program, it allowed me to really go out on my own, read about a technique, try it out, see if it worked, it allowed me to fail a number of times. But eventually it came with this data set that allowed me to triangulate a result that seemed very valid um, through that process.
0: That sounds really
1: rewarding. It was. I smile about it today still.
0: <laughs> and it's not always that people come out of their master's or um, certainly their PhD with a big smile on their face. I mean,
1: I wasn't you know, so happy about all the writing.
0: <laughs> the doing was fun, you know.
1: Yeah. Learning the skill, like how to do a survey, do a correct survey, how, how, to, how to survey a river to get meaningful data. And then to really make a, make that uh, into a product that is very visual was, was always, it's always rewarding for me. I can see
0: visualized data. What are you working on? I know you just arrived, but <laughs> what are you working on right now?
1: Uh, yeah, so what I'm mostly engaged in now is, a, is um, um, a product of my doctoral work, which is really in science education. So the, the main push in my dissertation was examining how cultu- culturally congruent instructional strategies work in an academic space for science so the the, um, the purpose really was to provide um, an instructional environment that was uh, conducive to someone's cultural background so this study took place at a tribal college in the states and which had which has a high number of, the, of indigenous students so the, the project worked with non-native faculty or non-indigenous faculty to teach their discipline in a manner that was that aligned with the worldview of those students so that uh, that meant to, including content that was familiar with the landscape that the students come from but also that um, acknowledged some of their traditions and beliefs but it also included a number of strategies like instructional strategies that were were essentially good for all students but you know we tried to get the faculty to employ them so using more um, um, What you call it, visual interpretation of data, using graphs and charts versus words just so students can uh, work through understanding um, tough concepts without being told, but being guided through these projects, but also engaging in some of the um, oral history, engaging in some uh, language concepts, language as um, observational points or language as pieces of scientific data. Uh, So that was, that was the basis of a lot of my, um, or or all of my um, um, doctoral work was in that area. So right now I'm, I've been chatting with a bunch of folks about um, engagement, indigenous engagement. So how they can improve their engagement to um, the local indigenous communities for projects that are near and dear to them. Because I think most people are recognizing that, um, oral traditions and indigenous people as the first observers of landscapes that they're acknowledging that that data is important and are, are trying not to perpetuate this extractive method of, of gaining access to the data, but um, treating indigenous groups and communities as partners in research, thereby giving them the merit that they deserve as, as the original doctorates of the land, if you will and And that's it's tough because you're bridging two world views oftentimes. It's like you know, communicating um, with um, you know downhill skiers and mountain, mountain bikers. They have something in common. They're both going downhill, but it's far too different disciplines of travel. And so you know they might not quite get each other's objectives at times. and it's it's like that. We're speaking the same language. We have this really and essentially the same objective, uh, but just aligning those goals together and acknowledging and respecting each other um, for what we know and, and essentially for what we don't know is pretty important because science definitely can can um, be well informed by indigenous groups but also indigenous groups you know have a lot to benefit from science as well so merging the two helping people to communicate and understand each other is really important and all in this really odd academic space is very challenging <laughs>
0: But very rewarding too, I'm sure.
1: It is, it is, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the modern world and the, the, the conveniences of modern life. And at some point, most indigenous folks go through some structured educational scheme like we have here. And, and it, it, it seems like a noble effort to try to improve that. If, that's, if this is what we've got, then we should try to make the best of it. And there should be equal effort, and maybe even more effort on, on the part of uh, on the part of institutions to try to make that um, uh, a a better experience for for Indigenous people. But for anybody, for that matter, I mean, structured education like this is it's it's very odd. It's very disjointed in in any society. It seems.
0: Well, it's funny the things that you were saying. Um struck me as being beneficial to many different types of learners because um, indigenous or not we all learn in different ways and so i can see many non-indigenous uh, students uh, benefiting from these uh, changes
1: that that's correct yeah and I, and I think that was one of the findings of of, of my uh, my dissertation too was that it's it's just good overall education for everybody it's, it's not really in the end it was even though it was it was labeled you know for for indigenous folks but if you think about what the, what the strategy actually is, culturally congruent, culturally doesn't mean just indigenous. That's everybody. And I think you're right. You know, if if uh, if we can uh, enhance practices that align better with our actual lived lives, man, that's the the there's so much potential
0: there. There are so many uh, respected and and um, successful people who say that their start was delayed because they had to overcome that hump of the education system um, and so it doesn't work for everyone but that doesn't mean that the person can't be successful um, but if we can reduce that hump um, for everyone then it why not
1: <laughs> yeah i, I agree yeah. and i think you know the, the ability to to you know survive i guess that might not be the greatest word but to survive you know. A, a, provincial education or state education however you call it that's it's changing though but you know the 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 kind of education i remember was it's very structured you know you do sit through a lecture you write a bunch of notes and you take a test and that's all it amounted to but now they're doing so many things you know they're getting kids outdoors and they're observing things and you know there's there's this really high stakes uh uh, part of, of of education now where Either you make the test or you don't and some people still ascribe to that and you know, attitudes are changing though and you know, education should be an experience that you come out of smiling. But the the struggle should still be there, but it should be it should be like you should feel good about it. Like I don't know this and I feel good about it. And that when I get to the end, hopefully I'll have inched a little closer to that. That's that's always what I think every day to, when I engage with students make it challenging enough that they can do it, but um, that they get this sense that it's okay to fail. It's okay to be wrong. And uh, the next day you might discover more. You might even discover it on your own.
0: You've done some really cool work out in the field. You were talking about that amazing river restoration project. project. Um, one of my favorite parts of this uh, podcast series has been hearing about field stories. Uh, apparently it's just this crazy place where amazing things happen. Uh, do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share?
1: Uh, let's see you know i did i i did most of this alone you know most of my field work was alone and um it, that's i mean that's something in itself you get a lot of time to think on, on your own i i do remember um there was this dog there was a dog that would follow me and he was the one of the the, the um the pets of the the folks who worked at the fish hatchery. This dog would follow me through this big loop where I'd measure all these wells. and He was a, a little companion of mine and he liked to play fetch. So I'd throw a stick every now and then and he'd run after it. Well, this one time I threw it a little too hard and it landed in the river. But at that time, the river was at its its peak stage. So it was this massive royal of water and, and debris. And uh, before I could do anything, the dog ran and jumped in the water and down he went. <laughs> i don't know i hope i didn't i hope i didn't uh, uh contribute to the demise of this pet so i tried not to think okay well he's a pretty good swimmer he'd probably be okay and sure enough you know a, a couple a couple hours later he'd come rolling up with the stick and ready to still play <laughs> but i got to chatting with the with the with the guy who lived in the area it was his dog and he must have found me because he was getting concerned he said, "Yeah, my dog keeps coming back. He's really tired, and he just sleeps." And I was wondering if he could maybe not <laughs> not play fetch with him so much while you're wandering around out here. I said, "Oh yeah, yeah." So I told him about the incident with the with the river, and so he got kind of concerned about. It. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, but but yeah, you know, mostly this all that time alone, and you know, to reflect and, and improve on the things you do, and I, I don't know this. There's, there's probably other examples I could think of. One time I got I got into some I got into some um, vegetation that I was unfamiliar with. I was on a different project, um, but so let me back up. To, so the night before, or a couple of days before, I had this um, big project I had to do this, a writing piece. So I was I was up really late typing away trying to get this project done for this class. Um, this was when I was still in in, in uh, um, I think it was in my I was in my master's studies. Maybe I was in my doctorate by then. I can't remember. But I was up all night, and and my wife at my wife was in school, and so we were both finishing this uh, different projects at the same time. And it was probably about maybe three in the morning. And she says, "You want to run down and get a you know get an energy drink, help us keep awake, because we maxed out on coffee and we had to get this done." So we zip on down to the convenience store and I got this big energy drink. At that time there was not a lot of them. I think it was a, called a monster or something. I didn't I never drank those ever. So we did it. So we went and got it and we're slamming, you know, sixty four ounces of energy drink. We get the project done and then um that next day or the or the day no, it was the next day. I went out to this project and I had to um, measure some wells that were out on the river. And it was in a, it was in an area I was unaccustomed to. It was just a small project I was doing, so I wandered around out there and came back, and then um, got a little rest and woke up and I was really itchy. My my whole body itched and um, I didn't quite connect to the the activities I was doing very well, and so my wife thought, well, maybe you're having a reaction from uh, from the, um, the the caffeine." Uh, yeah, so we were discussing all these things and it started to get so bad. And then we became, um, all of a sudden, we, we became internet doctors. So we're on the internet looking up stuff, what it might be. And then we come across this page that talked about shingles. And like, oh, yeah. We've been really, really stressed out lately. Like to the max, you know, money issues, school issues, ran all these things. You know, and then, oh, man, I got shingles. <laughs> I was convinced I had shingles because it kept getting worse. It, I couldn't sleep. It was so bad, itching so bad. So um went to the doctor finally and said, man, you got to help me. I think i got shingles. And so the doctor, okay, take your shirt off. So I take my shirt off. says, yeah, you, you don't have shingles. looks like you got into some poison oak. They <laughs> 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 knew right off. I was like, oh, good. And, and I don't know why I waited so
0: long. It was just terrible.
1: He gave me a little bit of cream and it felt better right away.
0: The internet's probably the number one cause of most serious diseases. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm curious. Um, why is your work important (laughs) it might not be (laughs) (laughs) and in either respect either a hydrogeology or um science education
1: yeah uh, i don't know i mean it's hard to qualify for myself whether what i'm doing is important i really like to have that reflected back to me through the people i work with or or to the people my research might benefit um yeah, it's hard to say. You know, I, I, I try to take this approach where anything I do or try to do is going to be restorative for, for indigenous communities. So they get something back that has been taken. And a lot of times it's, you know, a, a couple examples from back where I'm from, you know, bridging some product that has been extracted with something I can do today. is It's kind of rare. It's, it's hard to do. It's hard to manage because academic knowledge sometimes is far different than than community knowledge or cultural knowledge and so marriaging the two is can be quite challenging if you're you're not really in tune with the two worldviews. so i guess one one example is you know um, reviving say in this example um, an observation point so that's connected to us a traditional or a creation story so one of the projects I worked on was 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 um, inspired by one sentence that an anthropologist wrote down that one of my ancestors had said a hundred years ago. One little sentence, and it was very obscure. It says, "There's a there's a prominent feature on the mountain in in this valley that folks used to observe that let let them know something about the river." That's all I had to go off of, And so you start doing this investigation on this because it seems like an important thing. A a non-Indigenous anthropologist wrote this down for some reason because somebody told it to them. Of course, you have to validate whether it's true or not because things get interpreted incorrectly. But I thought it must be important, important enough, and why don't we know that anymore? Why everybody asks doesn't know about it. So that's a, it's like a launching point to say, okay, so how can I interface that with the things I do in this hydrology, hydrogeological discipline? And it it turns out that this observation point was a predictor of river behavior, potentially along this trail or pathway to the buffalo hunting plains for my ancestors in the 1800s, and so it became a, a a phenomenon to investigate so i would engage my students in class um, I, I would observe when the snow would melt off this feature we take that date and try to figure out where it uh, landed on the on the hydrograph for different locations along the river and then we try to examine whether that section of river would be weightable based on the velocity in that river so if we could understand where these historical crossing sites were could understand if that observation of the snow melting off of this feature coincided with the river being navigable at that time and it turns out it's it's a pretty good predictor of when peak discharge um, has passed at these particular sites going down um, this trail so reclaimed it reclaimed this knowledge and and then then the next effort is to try to get that in the, into the community <clears throat> so i'd use Student presentations for these various um, um, outside groups. So one would be the the, the the tribal council, which is the folks making the decisions about the government, the tribal government. So they go and give this presentation about this project, and it enlightens everybody. They well "I never knew that," and yeah, I never knew that. None of us ever knew that. You know, we didn't grow up knowing this knowledge. And so to see it connected to a, a, a science discipline like that kind of bridges those two things to say, yeah, this science is useful, and yeah, these stories were useful at that time too, and this is how it remains to be useful. That's one example, and I, I really look for projects like that that are going to give something back to to tribal communities. I'm in a new area, so I don't know the traditions yet, and I don't know the stories, so I'm hoping to do some, some research into that. Bring that into the classes I teach. Bring that into any sort of collaborations I have with folks here in this department to make that really a prominent feature. So it, it shows respect to the communities, that, hey, we want to we want to um, help to be part of the restoration of the wrongs that might have happened.
0: And, and I'm sure that must have been incredibly rewarding for the students and for the council. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it was, and it really put the students in an uncomfortable spot. <clears throat> Number one, because. They have to give a non-scientific presentation. And they're trained for so long in this undergraduate studies how to do public speaking in a scientific way. And we just totally scrapped that. We said, no, you are not going to do that. Because nobody cares to hear that. <laughs> so. If you're at a conference, if you're at a GSA conference, yeah, people want to hear that. But it's really, if you think about it, that's just the start of the conversation. It's the conversation after when somebody gives a scientific talk. And they talk more and they exchange ideas. That, that's like the real, the natural flow of conversation. So, to give these presentations in a public forum with these prominent leaders, whether they're tribal government or cultural leaders, it puts them in a very uncomfortable spot. But as emerging professionals, that's good for them. And, and you try to build up their confidence, you know, tell them some methods, storytelling methods to, to make a great story about this data. And in the end, it's really about. Including themselves in that narrative, and some students could really embrace it. Well, they they would connect where they grew up with the data they were collecting, and then people would want to listen to that because inherently everybody has an interesting story. And if you can incorporate that into what you're doing, it really brings the science alive. That's that's so neat, so neat to see.
0: And yeah, if you're only communicating to other scientists, um, your science really isn't getting out into the world. You really do need to be able to communicate uh, in a non-scientific way.
1: Yeah, you do. It, it's necessary. Makes makes the knowledge useful, practical.
0: And again, that's important not just for um, indigenous or from an indigenous perspective, but for all scientists.
1: Yeah, for humanity, we need it, man. We do. We we need it so bad. There's so much interesting work going on. And it would be a shame to see it die in a conference, in a yeah. scientific conference. You know, what you know. It, it really comes down to like the purpose and intent of that knowledge. If it lives in an academic space, that's fine, you know. Then the the academy grows, but at some point, it should it should have meaning to to um, the greater society. And and I think some people do a really good job of that, and some people have some work to do.
0: Well, even today, so much science is lost because um, the top scientists in that field um, only involve themselves in very small circles, and then when one or two of them die or retire, um, the research just stops yeah
1: that's that's such an interesting phenomenon because that happens in in uh, indigenous communities too oftentimes someone will have this knowledge and they'll hold on to it so tightly they won't want to share it because they're afraid it'll get out somewhere that they don't want it to go so the, like that trust has been broken and they'll die and nobody will ever know what that was it's, it's the same concept that you just mentioned that's so interesting that that happens in academics too i never heard that I could be wrong. Well, no, I believe it yeah. happens. I believe it happens. Yeah, I can see it. You get that old recluse <laughs> sitting in their office hoarding something, you know, because they're afraid. I don't know what they're afraid of or what, what it is. What's the block that says, I want to share this with the world?
0: Or even they want to share it, but they don't know how to because they've gone through that whole process of um, learning the strict scientific presentation method, which isn't friendly to the layperson.
1: Yeah, un- unaccessible makes they make
0: it inaccessible because of
1: that but also I know there's been instances where people you know they'll they'll steal an idea you know you you enter into a proposal writing process with somebody and they drop off and next thing you know they're proposing something that you guys just talked to yeah that that's crazy human nature stuff and just deal with I can see that happening too so then you become guarded with your ideas and you don't want to disseminate because you're afraid someone's gonna Steal them. Like they're gonna bounce off that and steal what you want to do next. Yeah. Strange, strange human stuff.
0: I found our department and uh the geology field to be fairly open and uh friendly, but um and it seems to be getting even more open and friendly. Um and hopefully you will turbocharge that process. Yeah, we're gonna make people more friendly. <laughs> <laughs> more accessible to uh yeah, yeah. to the everyday person. We need more laughter in these halls.
1: Yes. <laughs> no, yeah, it's been, It's easy, though. It's easy to silo yourself when you get so focused. You put on some blinders unknowingly. And yeah, you know, I, I can't say I'm not uh, immune to that. I'm sure I, there's some things I don't consider that I should. And this is about being open and honest. And a lot of that time, a lot of times it's just, you know, like I think I, I was observing a class last week. And I had this such this burning urge to look at my phone, you know, check my email. No, i got to be present. I just got to be here and listen. Don't do it. Look down at my email. Make sure I'm not getting that urgent message. And it's like that. You know, your research pulls you to that urgent look to your phone you know, all the time. You miss you miss things around you about your colleagues right next door to you or the research they're doing or the need that's in the community group that's maybe right next to campus or in your research area. You can often uh, be distracted by, them, by your, your obsession with your research.
0: <laughs> no one's really that good at multitasking. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. <laughs> you can't do research and be in the moment at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> it's very
1: difficult.
0: It's very difficult. Now, I think you've mentioned this um, or already answered this question, but uh, what's your favorite part of your work?
1: I know the, I know the, the not favorite part.
0: <laughs> Go ahead. That was going to be my next question. Email no, is <laughs> not my favorite
1: part of anything I do. Yeah. But I obsess over it because you don't want to miss nothing, and and I get to this point where I think oh, somebody emailed me and asked me something and I didn't answer, and that just weighs on my mind for days and days. I'll go back and look, make sure I answered everybody, because I know what that feels like to send out a hollow email and you get no response. You think, God, I guess they don't, I guess they don't care about what I said. <laughs> but really, it's a product of you get so busy. But I, you know, my favorite, my really my favorite part is just chatting with folks about ideas even if they go nowhere you know you get you get to know somebody you get to know their passion by listening to what they have they get to hear your passion for a second and if they don't match up that's fine you you get to know that person just a little bit better so just interacting with with people is is a joy to me yeah
0: and it seems like you you're really passionate about making a difference and you are
1: (laughs) yeah yeah you should make growth every day about about certain things in your life that can be hard but um the the folks here seem so open and ready and you know oftentimes they don't know what to do concerning especially like indigenous engagement or indigenous knowledge how to add it into their research or their courses but there's a sincerity like yeah i want to do that it's just a matter of getting past some of these other huge priorities that always are, are, are ever present in research. You know, it could be something, something as simple as, you know, I, I need maintenance for you know, some equipment that I use. And that's a really high priority for me. I don't have enough time to focus on such and such activity. So then these other things that are, are in the back of their mind that are important, like indigenous engagement, or integrating indigenous knowledge into their research or their courses, It's there, but it's kind of in the back of all these other issues that need to be solved. So, really when you're tackling that issue, you have to be ready to address many others, to help people, to lead people to put that onto the top of the list. Yeah.
0: Now, I I usually ask if a person identifies as being part of an underrepresented community. Uh, You've talked quite a bit about um, being Indigenous. Um, Do you feel like that's impacted your work, or have you been uh, treated any differently? because of that, or or any other communities that you may belong to?
1: Yeah, it's it's always it's ever present, you know. The so the intellectual credibility that someone offers you based on what you look like that, that's always present. Um, it was probably more present um, going through a master's and a doctorate than it is now. Maybe as you get older, you know, you get more wrinkly and defined, <laughs> and then it just by nature, people are. Add some respect to, to, to older folks. I don't know. Where, I don't know if I'm there yet, but um, I used to get this a lot when I first started teaching. Um, um, some people would think I was the janitor. Like, oh, can you come open this door for me? Yeah, I don't have the key though. Oh, okay. You know where you know where I can get a mop then. I could figure it out for you, but <laughs> what do you do here? Then, well, I'm, I'm an instructor. Oh, oh, okay, you know, then they figure out the instructor, and that's just you know, based on someone's look, it, it, we naturally do it. We uh, we evaluate people based on their skin color, the way they speak, the clothes they wear. It, it, we, it, it's natural, but we have we always have some filter that we process it through to decide how much credibility we want to attach to somebody. In, some people are really good at being very unbiased and letting more data come in to figure out um, what this person knows and doesn't know and so yeah you know I've been I've been subjected to to that but you know I, I take it in stride I, I grew up on on a reservation and in a mixed community where um, the the non-native folks outnumbered the native folks um, but you know everybody got along in, in that community because there was a there was a history of their folks being there and our folks being there. And a lot of them had a relative in some manner that was married into a tribal uh, family. So there was, there was always that. But when you come to a new place, you, know, you never really know how people are going to treat you or, or, or how much credibility they're, they're going to apply to you. Because maybe you sound a little bit different. You have a weird accent. You have long hair, dark skin. You know, or maybe you have long hair and light skin, so you get judged harshly right. by your own community, you know, or you know, what have you. There's there's all these assumptions that go into play. It's such a odd social dynamic. But yeah, it's it's come into play, but I I try to move past it and give people the benefit of the doubt that, you know, it's we're all at different stages of understanding. So I, I, I try not to judge people too harshly on anything and always take an opportunity to find an inroad to expanding people's understanding, especially of Indigenous people.
0: That's a really positive and, and constructive perspective. Um, I've definitely found that when I have to talk about something that I'm nervous about, I uh, I wear a frumpy cardigan because people <laughs> take you more seriously <laughs> if you frump it up.
1: I could see that, yeah, I could see that. I pro- I think I subconsciously do that, so the days I'm lecturing I dress up a little more, you know. Fancy leather shoes and colored socks, you know? <laughs> yeah, shoes. Yeah, helps. yeah, <laughs> yeah. give yourself up the game on your credibility a little bit. But once you get to know them, you start dressing down and come up with a T-shirt. You know, they know you already, so they, you know, there's no prejudgment.
0: Now, something we've all had to deal with, um, regardless of how we, we look or, or, or talk, uh, has been COVID. So I'm curious, uh, has COVID really impacted your work and your, your career? no
1: not really not really um when 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 uh the pandemic first became very serious um i was transitioning out of a very heavy teaching load at my previous institution and was focusing focusing on a a different directive um it it did impact some of the activities we could do in, in this other directive um but we we um it was far easier than those who were really in the trenches instructing and had to revise a lot of their courses to an online format and a lot of the other research that i that i am doing it's related to ethnography or oral histories wasn't impacted that much because it was um, something i could still continue to do and i could reach out to the the folks that i um generally seek advice on or generally ask about um, matters important to um, cultural knowledge. So it didn't impact me too much. I mean, of course, in other ways it did, but as far as my research and things that I did and teaching, I was kind of lucky in that way.
0: You did have a very strange interview process here with UBC, though, didn't you? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was odd and that was difficult, but I it was a great, it was really a good challenge to, to I seen all my all my colleagues go through the struggle of of crafting these lessons and for that, repurposing them for online an online environment and um, um, when I went to the search process, I had to do exactly that. I had to take one of my lessons that lessons that I thought was really impactful and demonstrated some of the things I did in the class and reformulated to this small amount of compressed time online that that was very challenging and you know i didn't get a chance to see campus or get you know taken out to lunch by the faculty in the search committee all those kind of things were were out so i had to stand in front of the screen and answer questions for you know six hours for two days that was really challenging but man i met a lot of people and, and i i you know nonetheless we 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 found areas that we had some common interests, and I think that was that was really valuable, and that was one of the big deciding factors to come here was was just the spirit of the faculty they were so open and and, and so willing to chat about the things they were interested in, and um, really to understand my own interests. Yeah. And I'm sure that I'm sure it would have been the same um, in in person. They're a friendly bunch. <laughs> they are. Darn it! I I, I want to meet the I want to meet the 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 uh, though the ones that don't come out. Yes. <laughs> or they're so outspoken. Somebody that nah, I don't talk to. Those guys—they're too outspoken. <laughs> I'm sure there's one or two. But yeah, I mean, getting to know everybody has been just been great. It We
0: should get pins or like a club for all the faculty who were hired, without even setting <laughs> yeah. <considering> foot on campus.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> get like a stamp
0: card for the people you met. Met that person we need that too yeah, yeah. there are so many people in this department
1: yeah, yeah yeah i forget names somebody will chat
0: remember when we talked about that yeah kind of do remind me <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. so you've painted a really um inspiring picture about the work that you do uh what kind of background or courses or experience would you recommend for someone who uh wants to maybe follow in your footsteps
1: oh boy you know um I would recommend for any undergraduate or graduate student going through any institution is to really focus in on the practical skills that you're going to use in your profession um you know in my case you know field-based learning those are always the courses i remember best and if i could get my hands on a piece of equipment that i might use professionally you know i was in awe and if i could use it correctly you know, that, that upped my confidence, you know, considerably. Um, a lot of times, you know, we teach in this strange structured format of time schedules that we, it's hard to do that. It's hard to bring that kind of experience into the classroom. So that as an undergraduate or graduate, you know, just finding those instances where you can um, gain a proficiency in something that you might use in your profession is important. Even if it's, you know... A, some software or program or a technique you know I, I i'm i i don't advocate for memorization of formulas you know it's 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 quaint when you can chat with someone and spout off a, a formula you know but understanding how that formula is constructed its history that's really important you know but memorization of those kind of things i, I think we're way beyond that in this digital age where things are right on your phone you can look it up I wouldn't advocate not understanding it, but you know those that aspect of learning I think is is, is gone. You know, and there should be innovative ways to get students to remember important concepts rather than memorization. I know, I know, I, I can't speak for all disciplines, you know, because I think there is a level of um, of, um, of comprehension of terms that a person just inherently needs to know for the next level of courses, but. There's got to be a better way. I, I don't have all the answers. That. I think for undergraduate education, graduate education, a focus on practical, useful skills is very important. And I would advocate for faculty in these lectures, and I'm sure they all do at some point, but to focus on that as the, as the foundation
0: rather than um, some of the very theoretical stuff that maybe they won't use, but
1: they'll discover on their own
0: and what would you consider to be the most important course that you took? The, the course that always stands out, and it
1: was mind-blowing. And it I can't even remember the course. It. I think it was, maybe it was called Disturbance Ecology or something like that. Oh, I don't remember. Exactly. It was some sort of e- ecology course. And the instructor took us out. So we learned about these lichens. In the class, we learned about lichens. Okay, here's the different kinds of lichens. They occupy this successional area depending on disturbance, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then in the next class, we went out to a this big talus slope that is intersecting this really heavy riparian area. And we 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 had enough information to identify the different types of lichens. So what we did is we took a transect, and in the individual groups we, we counted. We identified these lichens through this talus slope and this riparian area, and we did a number of them. We all shared this data, so we had this grid of data, and I was so excited about this data. Like, oh, wow! This is pretty cool. I can I can see it, and then I put it in Excel and made this three D map, and you could visually see this change of something you don't normally see because you don't pay a lot of attention to lichens, but you could see this successional change of lichens into this riparian area. I always remember that I got so excited about about data and science and visualizing data at that point it's just a real simple uh, simple exercise but it was in the field it was data that we collected and the data that we were allowed to visualize and produce in the way that we wanted
0: how long does that take? I always imagine it's like decades or centuries for like the progression of lichens uh-
1: oh god I don't know <laughs> I don't know I have no idea That I, you know I didn't I didn't study any more about lichens after that. <laughs> I have no idea, <clears throat> but yeah, it was just that ability to collect the data, graph it up, and visualize it, and then talk about it. I mean, you got you have a product there, a graph. You can it's such a, such a huge talking point to to tell your instructor what you found. Of course, they already know, but they get to see this little little moment of discovery. And I don't know if everybody had that same experience in that class, but. It, it, that's that's one class that just stands out to me all. It's, it's one of the turning points. One of those others too, especially in physics, when I took physics, because it was very hands-on. My instructor was very hands-on. We measured stuff. We measured temperatures. We measured forces. We threw balls and measured that. It was very hands-on, which made physics so much fun, because then you got to actually see and measure the, the, these, these very physical processes and see them in action. The, the physics and the psychology course are really what, what promoted me to, to go into graduate school.
0: Speaking of which, um, I know the uh, grad school uh, process and the uh, PhD process can be quite grueling. Um, and it's good to always have like, someone either uh, mentoring you or inspiring you or just supporting you. Yeah. Did you have anyone like that in your life or in yeah. your studies?
1: Yeah, you know, I had, I had many mentors, I think, along the way um in in my undergraduate um, program, I had the, the biology instructor that I was speaking of. she was very innovative in her approach to teaching and it just made science seem so much fun. And my physics instructor he he also um, instructed a groundwater course and we, we got to actually make a visual representation of groundwater movement in, in the subsurface. that was the first time I got to really experience that. So it was, less theoretical and very hands-on and those two people just the method in which they taught was so fascinating to me to see that approach and and they were largely some of the reasons why i decided to go to graduate school because i wanted to know more they they opened the door but here's the possibility yeah very
0: inspiring it's always great when a prof can inspire someone like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so sean i'm curious What would you like to be your professional legacy when you retire? Or uh, what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone?
1: (laughs) Oh, boy, that's a tough one, you know. That's, um, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody aspires to achieve some sort of great deed, you know, in their life. And I think through the wisdom of Of age, I'm not that old, (laughs) but the wisdom of age is, especially from from uh from um, I guess the standpoint of my community, we 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 try not to look too far ahead, you know, and but I mean, but everybody has aspirations, you know, and I think, you know, just just very simply, you know, you just you just hope that you you die happy. (laughs) <laughs> and so, a career being part of that, you know, it, you 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 want to achieve a level of success in in anything you do, and I think that that idea of success as as a, a marker of some sort of legacy that what you of what you did in your life, I think would would really would really be a reflection on uh, a community's. They, like, you, my community would have to judge that, not me. Um, so, if, if if on my deathbed they say, "Man, you did you did good things," and I don't know what those would be, because community needs are far different than academic needs. So, my my career and my my discipline is very tied. It's tied very tightly to what my family and my community think about what I'm doing. And if there was a disconnect in that, I would feel like I didn't do, I didn't do my job right. Because, you know, I, I feel that whatever I do should be something useful to, to those folks. And, and I think in turn, if that, if that's true, it will also be useful, useful for academics or or my discipline. I think tying those two together, I think is, is pretty important. So I guess you could say, in a way, that would kind of be my objective: is really to to um, to bridge what what I would call like uh, like community knowledge production, the, the the operation of research in in active living communities, and the the type of knowledge production that goes on in academic institutions. To show to show both how similar they they are and to, you know, if there are issues in either of those categories of of folks to to kind of dispel some of those myths or to to find understanding between them.
0: Now, my final question today is that the speed of life is just going so fast. And I noticed that the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely different at the end of their career. Where do you see your field going? Um, How do you see it changing? And What advice do you have for young people to anticipate those changes?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I I see things slowly changing uh, in in an interdisciplinary way. I could see how, you know, traditional, I guess, STEM fields or traditional science fields, especially in geosciences, is starting to um, embrace or, I guess, finally acknowledge that you know that the some of the important theories and social sciences are, are very important to understanding the, the, the disciplines in which we work in because they, they are they are so um, tightly bound to to human thought or human ideas and to ignore that and to think science can operate um, beyond the, the human capacity or beyond human value I think is um, I think that that kind of idea that stereotype of science I think is slowly fading and I think in that way a lot of younger scholars are are embracing the idea that you know to engage your own community to engage society at large um, in your discipline is becoming very important because it makes the science useful it makes, makes the products of, of our discoveries of of the knowledge that we produce whether it's methods or, or who knows what it might be but that has to be tightly bound to a usefulness in, in society otherwise it's just a neat leather bound book that nobody reads and <laughs> that's that's cool i guess because it looks nice on the shelf and it smells great i suppose <laughs> but you know in the, in the in the end what who's using it and why does it really matter and and I think that's the ultimate question, you know, in in the, that science should ask: Why does it even matter? And I, I don't think any any of us would be doing any of these things if it didn't matter in some human way, for some human purpose.
0: Thank you for sharing the wisdom from your chaotic thoughts. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your passion and your stories, and uh, just your your knowledge. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca/slash learn/slash podcast or listen on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.